Welcome to the Conceive Baby Podcast. My name's Tasha Jennings, fertility naturopath and nutritionist. In each episode, I share with you my best fertility tips and introduce you to world-leading fertility experts to help you improve your fertility well-being to create your healthy pregnancy. Welcome to this episode of the Conceive Baby Podcast. I'm fertility naturopath and nutritionist, Tasha Jennings, and I love helping proactive women and couples improve their fertility well-being to create healthy pregnancies and healthy babies through my private online consultations, my Your Fertile Pantry, six-week online program, and my premium prenatal supplement, Zycia Natal Nutrients. Now, my guest today is the lovely Dr. Jenya Rosen. Jenya is a gynecologist and fertility specialist here in Melbourne. She trained at the Royal Women's Hospital, where she now works as a consultant, as well as her private practice in East Melbourne and the beautiful peninsula. Jenya has a special interest in medical fertility preservation, which is what we discussed last time she joined me on the podcast. And she is the deputy head of the well-known fertility preservation service at the Royal Women's Hospital. Jenya is also undertaking a PhD aimed at helping women conceive after cancer. But this time, we are talking about something that is a common but serious complication of IVF, and that's ovarian hyperstimulation. Jenya recently published a paper titled The Ovarian Hyperstimulation That Truly Matters, Admissions, Severity and Prevention Strategies. And she is kindly sharing her research insights with us today. So welcome, Jenya. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tasha, number one, for that kind introduction. Number two, for having me. It's always lovely to, to be with you, to have a chat. And um, yeah, it, it's great to join you also on a topic that is a little bit left field of, of what I usually talk about. So I'm a little bit excited. <laughs> something it different is. for me. And look, I, I love our chats and I love your passion. I think that's something we could chat for hours um, on the topic of fertility, I think. And I think we have done. Um, but particularly, as you said, this is something that isn't discussed as often and that's why when I saw your paper I reached out um, to, to see if we could discuss this topic. So I mean ovarian hyperstimulation can you I guess explain in simple terms I guess what it is and and why it is a concern in the context of IVF? Absolutely so ovarian hyperstimulation is something that probably um, some of the people listening out there would have heard about or read about it's mm. mentioned um, almost synonymously when um, IVF compl complications are discussed it's something that um, you know was around from way back when when um, the the whole technology first started and what it relates to is the stimulated ovaries that of course the, the controlled ovarian stimulation is something that's a part of every fresh IVF cycle because that's how we improve the egg yield so we want to get as many, um, we want to get lots of eggs from the ovaries when we're doing a cycle, not to just be limited to the one mm -hmm. egg that would naturally ovulate, of course, um, if we weren't doing a stimulation cycle. 
And therefore, um, we run sometimes into the problem of getting the ovaries to stimulate too much, getting too many follicles to develop and getting too many eggs. And what is too many? That's a somewhat debated topic. But what can happen as a result of the numbers being too many is that um, the woman in the following days after the egg collection can become sick. Um, the mild end of the spectrum of the condition is sort of involves just some pain and bloating, often can be quite um, uncomfortable, quite significant, but self-limiting and will usually slowly start to plateau and then um, improve over the days following egg collection. In the sort of more moderate spectrum of hyperstimulation, in addition to the pain and bloating, there may also be things like vomiting. Um, the urine output can start to drop off. And the more severe end of the spectrum, that fluid that's building up in the abdomen is sort of depleting the, um, the vascular system. So there's less, um, but there's less blood, um, there's less sort of output that, that's going on inside the vessels in the body. And that can lead to um, things like the kidneys not getting enough blood flow, so um, to, to the kidneys becoming sort of um, kidney failure in, in the severe instances. Um, the, the fluid that can build up in the lungs, um, that can cause problems with breathing. Um, and so those things would actually require hospital admission, sometimes mm. for fluid drainage from the tummy or from the lung spaces, um, also IV fluids to sort of replete that vascular system supply to, to get the kidneys, um, the, the blood supply it needs. Um, and that's usually the severe end that's managed in hospital. So um, it relates, the, the causes, it's sort of quite a complex cascade, but it basically relates to substances that are produced from those enlarged follicles, things like um, vascular endothelial growth factors, a whole lot of different things are secreted which cause those, those sorts of changes in the body. And um, the mild end of the spectrum, OHSS, is, as I said, quite common, um, up to about 5% of cycles. Even, even greater would be affected with mild, um, mild symptoms. But the severe end, the moderate to severe end of the spectrum, thankfully, is much less common and we're talking you know under one percent usually um and importantly not everything that presents for example as pain is ohss and that's where i think sometimes it gets a little bit of a bad name or um is a little bit overreported because anyone who presents with pain and bloating after the egg collection that there's this tendency to to label them as having ohss but of course, other things can cause pain. The ovaries mm -hmm. are extremely enlarged. Um, they can, you know, some of those um, spaces where the eggs came from, the follicles, they can have bleeding into them. Um, they can also sort of rupture and leak a little bit of blood, which causes um, irritation in, in that area and therefore pain. Um, the other possibilities are, which is some another condition which actually is very um important to diagnose early is torsion or twisting of the ovary. Mm -hmm. Again, because it's an enlarged ovary on its pedicle, it can twist, um, disrupting its blood supply. Yeah. So there's lots of different conditions. And I guess one takeaway message, even from my answer, is that it's important to get checked out. Yeah. To actually, you know, not just assume this is ovarian hyperstimulation or OHSS, but, you know, actually see what, what, are, what are the other possibilities. 
and to seek the help, I guess, of your advice of your medical provider, because this is, there is a lot of IVF and we, I guess, a lot of people think, okay, we'll just do IVF, but it is a medical procedure. It yes. can have some complications. And there is, a, as you've just stated, there is a really broad spectrum of those complications from really mild and just some discomfort to something that really needs hospital management. So your paper introduces um, an inpatient classification system for OHSS. Um, can you explain, I guess, how this works and why it is important for, for clinical practice to have this classification? Yeah, so in um, so first of all, it was a definitely a team effort. That paper we worked um, alongside some of the um, researchers at the Women's Hospital. Um, we also had a obstetric and gynae uh, registrar working alongside us. So definitely a, a team effort. Yeah. Um, what we the reason we sort of um, the the conception of this paper, why it came to to our minds, is that. Um, it's kind of that idea that a lot of things that present in the emergency department, patients who present us, we, we thought were um, not uncommonly mislabeled as OHSS mm. and perhaps just got that as their diagnosis and, and you know, because it's, it's you know, they've had IVF, they've presented, you know, a few days after, it must be that. Um, and we thought that when we do this audit, and, of course, the Royal Women's Hospital is... Um, you know, um, we probably get the most, it's a big catchment area for IVF patients. And yeah. so it's not just one or two units whose patients would present there, but, you know, probably um, a combination of all of them. Um, and so it would, we're seeing a large proportion, in other words, of patients in Victoria who present with um, severe symptoms and sometimes requiring hospitalisation after IVF. So, um, we thought that when we do the audit, we might actually be reclassifying the OHSS into a whole lot of other conditions. As it happened, it, while that was um, something we came across, it wasn't quite as common as we had anticipated. But what we then um, stumbled upon was the idea that really what we want to know, what's clinically important, is the OHSS that um, for, for which a woman will end up in hospital for, you know, will actually be admitted to hospital, um, require IV therapy, um, the, you know, the uh, blood thinning medication to reduce the risk of clots and stroke, um, pulmonary embolus, which, which is another risk that I didn't mention before in the severe part of the spectrum. So um, we really wanted to know how, you know, what was the best way to classify that so that mm. we're kind of, I guess, when we're seeing patients, when we've got um, um, worried people or not worried people, we can talk to them about, well, what is your risk of that more severe end of the pipe of the spectrum rather than the more nuisance sort of bloating and pain that women will not infrequently get after IVF and egg collection. So, um, so that that sort of inpatient classification was a, was sort of taking the um, the the women who presented and putting them into those categories and then coming up with some um, estimations of numbers that we're seeing in Victoria um, and thankfully the conclusion was that really it's it's not a very high percentage it's in fact a quite a low percentage of all the IVF cycles that we do which is of course really reassuring. Yeah. I tend to sort of get um, 
some of the patients I see are really worried about OHSS and mm. some of them, for example, are really not at risk of OHSS. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a condition that anyone will just get. It's women um, who have either a quite a normal or average ovarian reserve or higher, but it won't be those women that have a low response, you know, that have a low ovarian reserve and, and will have a low response to, to, to the um, ovarian stimulation. So, those women are very easy to reassure that, you know, while other risks, of course, are possible, this one not going to really, you know, there's, there's it's not a realistic um, fear. Yeah. So I guess what are the people that it may be more of a risk? Um, well, I guess what are the characteristics or factors for, for those people that may be at higher risk than some of the lower responders that, as you said, are really negligible risk of so, OHSS? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Those those sorts of women we're trying to get as many as yes. from yeah. them. Yeah. That's the challenge. It's the opposite challenge. So um, the women who are at higher risk are, for example, those polycystic ovaries. Yeah. So polycystic ovarian syndrome, of course, that, yeah. that um the actual so women with the actual syndrome, but also women who just have the morphology or the appearance of um, lots and lots of follicles on their ovaries who don't have the actual syndrome. And that actually encompasses lots and lots of women that we see. Mm. It's not uncommon at all, you know, probably um, at least um, one in five. Um, then the other group um, would be those for whom uh, we are a little bit more limited in the trigger options that we have for them. So what I mean by that is women who may not seem like they've got a high ovarian reserve, um, but the ones that, let's say, don't ever get periods um, mm. because of the signalling issue coming from their brain, telling you know, giving signals to the ovary to, you know, grow a follicle, ovulate, and that's what, you know, gives you that menstrual cycle. They're not having that. And as a result, um, stimulation can sometimes be a bit more difficult and we're also limited in our kind of get out of jail um, medical options that we use to reduce the risk of hyperstimulation for women once we know that they've developed lots and lots of follicles in their cycle. So they're a very tricky group as well. So we've got a few, um, I guess, few tricky groups. Um, age is definitely correlated as well. Younger age gives you more uh, potential to have hyperstimulation, but it really still depends on ovarian reserve um, yeah. as, as the primary thing. Um, and I guess, yeah, that leads me on into the other topic of what we can do to prevent it. So, yeah. um, again, those women, you know, for example, who do have an average or higher ovarian reserve who are very worried going into a cycle about ovarian hyperstimulation, we can reassure most of these women that, if, you know, first of all, the dose is adjusted based on um, things like yeah. their weight and their ovarian reserve test. Yeah. Um, so, so that's useful. But then if they are, despite that, developing lots and lots of follicles and we know we're going to get lots of eggs and they're at risk of hyperstimulation, we would usually use a different type of trigger or the agonist trigger for that final yeah. maturation of the eggs before collection. And that tends to reduce our risk of um, that more severe end of the hyperstimulation um, condition that women develop. But importantly, and this is um, actually one of the other points I wanted to highlight, is that um, following on from that paper we published, we did a 
um, analysis of a subgroup of patients who actually did get that trigger that I just described, the agonist yeah, trigger. The agonist trigger, yeah. And they still developed hyperstimulation. So mm. you definitely it's not a completely get-out-of-jail card in the sense that it's still a risk um, and therefore, you know, we still have to be judicious with the doses that we use, et cetera, because some of these women still do go to hospital and get quite sick even though they've had that trigger. So that's a paper we're hoping to publish soon. Oh, I'll have to have you back on Thank then. <laughs> I love keeping abreast of your research, which is, has been quite prolific lately, I have to say. You've been involved in quite a lot of papers. Um, is it is that medical management and this is that monitoring which is really important in this situation. I guess people can be reassured if they are being well managed and monitored because IVF in some ways, I often say it's it's a science and an art, really. There's no, it's not like a black and white, yes, you have this, you take this. There's such a blend of medications. I know from my experience, I've just seeing the patients um just that there's such a blend of medications and to get that right can get good outcomes um but it is we're just working that out as we go along through the cycle and monitoring that and I guess you discussed in your paper the importance of education obviously for both doctors and for patients I think to be aware of some of these conditions so I find I find my patients on both spectrums as you probably do some with no idea this is even a possibility and that IVF is so easy everyone does it there's it's super safe to other people who are really scared of of the medical manager and the complications but I guess to minimize the risk can you explain I guess the strategies that you would look at in that education around both the doctors and the patients yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess you can sort of divide it up into um, all the planning stuff. So for mm. a patient who has, um, who, who you know might be at higher risk, there, there's things, for example, metformin is one medication that um, there's a little bit of evidence that um, being on metformin, especially someone with PCOS, can actually reduce the risk of hyperstimulation a little bit. Mm. So that, that might be, you know, the really early stuff that one would consider. Of course, um, then the in the actual design of, of that um, cycle, you would be thinking about judici judiciously using the stimulation doses and the type of cycle we would use um, in order to, to minimise that risk. And then later in the cycle, when we're seeing lots and lots of follicles and, and the risk being there as a result, we would usually use that agonist trigger that's one of the sort of bigger, harder-hitting weapons that we have to, to reduce the risk of that. Um, and, of course, the other is in the way we um, sort of uh, what, what type of um, post-egg collection cycle that we do. So we would, for example, if we had a plan that we were going to do the egg collection, five days do the embryo transfer, et cetera, we would change that plan to not transferring a fresh embryo it's what's known as a freeze-all cycle where we just create all the embryos and freeze them rather than putting one back um, because we know pregnancy itself can really drive the, the disease process and we want to, you know, kind of stop it there as much as possible. So um, doing so, so not uh, transferring an embryo in that fresh cycle, letting things settle down and then using the natural cycle or, or some um way of synchronizing the lining with the embryo in order to do the transfer in you know the month or, or two um patients sometimes don't like that mm. because there's a bit of a delay and they're already 
kind of have their, you know, they're just itching to go and to have that embryo transferred. But it's, you know, it's again that sort of safety first. I was about um, to say the same thing. And from like you want it to be a really good situation. I always talk to patients, but you want to be in a really good place with embryo to implant and to have a really healthy home. Your hormones are going crazy. Everything's going crazy. That's not the ideal time to be getting pregnant and putting that embryo in, giving it the best chance possible. So, yeah, so it always feels like a delay. And, yeah, you have Everyone wants to do it straight away and you don't want to wait, but it is often a good idea to just let Absolutely. things settle and get in a really good place to create that pregnancy. And I think um, explaining it to the patient just as, as you did is important because once people understand sort of the reasons for things, they're much more yeah. likely to be accepting and, um, you know, of that advice. So. Number one, as you say, it's not the best environment for an embryo to go in. And number two, even if they get pregnant, um, even in that environment, that actual pregnancy itself can um, prolong or even worsen the hyperstimulation symptoms. And that's not what... You want to get off to a pregnancy on a really good start. So, yes, though it's hard to wait, yeah, much better option. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Oh, sorry. So I was just going to say um, that sort of the, the freeze-all um, cycle mm. um, being, you know, another management strategy. And then there's a few other medications that sometimes mm. um, we can use mm. as well to try to reduce the risk of that. Yeah. Um, so there are really quite a few things we can do. So it's not something we don't have control over, which is great. As you say, the, the process is sometimes feels a bit more like art than science. Yeah. Um, and but it's nice to know that there is, you know, some scientific options. <laughs> Absolutely, there's it, it, a lot of science here. Um, I guess it's it's going with the right. That's why the doctor is really important. You know, I, I often say, you know, getting the right doctor who is going to be across these medications because there's so many different blends. That's why I see the art in it. It's it's you guys who actually use your understanding and your knowledge to be able. It's not just a protocol you give, and I think there is. A lot of my new newer IVF people often think, oh, it's just a protocol. I just everyone gets the same meds, you get the same. They're like, no, it's such a such a that's where the art comes in, where you can use your skills and understanding of the medications to best tailor them to that particular person to get the best outcomes for them with all the amazing science that we have. Um that's right. That's right. And actually, um, I was going to say before that um, you know, that planning, for example, of doses that we do based on someone's weight and their ovarian reserve. You know, we can do the best plan in that sense, but their body's going to respond, in, yeah. you know, potentially an unexpected way. And even what's interesting is that even for that woman, she might respond differently from one cycle to the next with exactly the same cocktail of medications. So that's always something to bear in mind. We're all Keeps human. Us on our toes. Exactly. Yeah. All humans, different metabolism, different weeks, different cycles. Anyone, you know, I think most women who have a menstrual cycle know that it's not textbook, it's not the same every time. And IVF can be the same, or we've got different waves of eggs coming through at different times. So it's it, it is gonna be that little bit different each time. So yes. It's interesting with the, you know, the apps that everyone has um, yeah. to track cycles. They've now, you know, the, the amount of data that's collected from that is enormous. And what we're learning things about women's variability it was thought that you know that classical 14 day luteal phase you know from ovulation to to period now we know so much more variable and even for the same woman as we said from one cycle to the next it's not just the follicular phase that's variable which we thought but it's also it's both phases really 
It's just yeah. there's so many differences. We're complex. We are complex beings, um, yes, as, as women. I say when I work on I always work with couples. Um, but I spend most of my consultation, I'm usually about an hour and a half with my, my initial patients. But so most of it with women, I say, no, you're no less important. But there's just a lot of simpler mechanics <laughs> going on. With the women, it's, it's far more, more complex and variable and getting that understanding. And that's where IVF is the same. It is complex. It's, it's, it's tailoring it to that person. And that's where even having a couple of cycles may be needed to just get that, that right and get the best outcome for that's that right. particular that's- person. And the understanding, yeah, about how they respond and, yeah, the quality of embryos that are created are going to be different each time. So there, there's so many variations there. Exactly. So even a cycle that hasn't gone as well as anticipated, I always say, okay, what, could, what learning can we gather from that? And that's why I was like, let's, okay, what can we ask the embryologist? Let's, let's, but they had to look at the eggs. That's great to know. What can we know about the eggs? What can we know about the sperm? What was happening? Let's use that, not just, okay, yes, it's really deflating, but how can we, silver lining, we're going lots of information to better prepare for the next round. So at least we can have that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's it, it is a learning process, and sometimes we even learn um, more about why the couple might have had trouble falling pregnant in the first mm. place. You know, of course, unexplained infertility is so common. About one in three couples we see we can't identify an obvious cause, but it you know, as a part of those cars, a small percentage of those we actually do get that sort of information from IVF, which is interesting because we never think of IVF as diagnostic or a test <laughs> I agree but in some ways that's why yeah I try to let's let's look at the cycle let's unpack what what can we gain from it what insights can we use to, to better prepare for next time and it is so interesting I've had some couples yeah they, they do IVF and you know the sperm's not going anywhere near the egg and you think okay well exactly. that's not what's happening in your body we've got to actually you know work on this because that's not that was you know probably your yep. main issue and as you said that becomes the diagnostic um there so oh <laughs> bless you <laughs> i guess back to the you know your research and the the ohs which is which is great that we've got this classification i think getting the awareness around it that as we spoke off area it, it's not something we want to be you know, putting the fear of pe- into people, but also just to have this awareness um, around it. I guess, are there any other promising prevention strategies um, that we're looking at? Obviously, that agonist is is the really good as long as your specialist is across it and is monitoring your cycle, they can use that that particular trigger. Um, I guess, what are the prevention strategies or interventions um, that are being used? Um, so I think overall in the kind of where the field is going it's really mm. been that freeze all kind of the improvement yeah. in in our freezing technology which has allowed embryos to survive better and to uh, you know give really great pregnancy outcomes and that's what's sort of driven that you know we have very low threshold of as i said before be, you know converting to a freeze all cycle where we don't transfer an embryo and um and and that that's the thing that's that's really reduced the um the overall rate, mm-hmm. especially the late onset OHSS, which is that one that's related to pregnancy itself. Um, and the other big one is the agonist trigger, and they kind of go hand in hand in a way because when we give an agonist, when we do agonist triggers for women, 
we also don't transfer an embryo after because of the um, the luteal phase or the lining not able to support the embryo as it would with our regular go-to trigger. Mm. Things almost go hand in hand together. So they're the um, probably you know as a as a field that's where the reduction you know the big reduction in OHSS comes from. Um, other strategies are to do with medications. For example, the one I mentioned, um, the, the one I was alluding to before, that's cabergoline. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to, or bromocryptine, it's, it, it does seem to reduce the um, severity of OHSS as well. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that the other important thing to mention about that is that we're always going to, it's not a condition we're going to be able to eliminate. Mm -hmm. So while we can reduce the risk, we're never going to have no risk of OHSS, even in the severe end of that spectrum within the hospital. And so that's where I guess that um, that suggestion, you know, that IVF is a medical treatment, anything can have side effects. We have to be very, very clear in our counselling of, of couples, not in, in terms of um, making them fearful, but that, you know, there are, even, even though they're rare, there are risks which are life-threatening that can occur. But you know, everything's a balance, you know, leaving your house in the morning has risks associated with it. You wouldn't get in your car if you weren't going to, I guess, have some kind of risk in life, I guess. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. But I think that's where I, I find that the more informed patients are, the better they're able to cope with what comes their way. Because it is that fine line, as you said, we want to stimulate as many as possible. Most people do want to get as many eggs as possible. So there's the fine line between getting the a really good yield of those eggs and then that obviously tipping tipping too far but look, that's why I love you know referring to and working with specialists like yourself who are you know can be really across that and you, you're understanding of the medications and tailoring it to that particular patient it's not just a protocol you're not just a number you're actually getting medication that is being managed and suited to, to your needs to get the best outcome because it makes a difference so i often have people who, who don't who think okay all ivf's the same you just stim and you get an egg collection i'm like no the medications that you're actually given for that stim affect the maturity of the egg the yield your risk of complications all of those things so getting yourself a really good specialist that you feel confident in can make a big difference absolutely and just having someone who you know hold your hand throughout the process yeah someone who will explain things, who knows your situation and, you know, don't feel like you have to repeat things, you know, the same things a hundred times. I think that that's kind of because it is such a um, such a huge thing to go through the, the IVF process. And so having that person to support you that you feel they care and know your history very well is, is so important. I find that's something that uh, patients probably value the most really. Definitely. And I know you do that that really well because it is something IVF is, I find it, 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 it takes the control away. And as human beings, we like to have control over, you know, most things, or probably, probably particularly myself, I would say. Um, but I think IVF takes that away. And one of the most fundamental things, we want to create a family, we want to, you know, reproduce and have our own children. And the control of that is taken away and really almost giving that control to, to someone else. So I always say to people, don't feel that you need, if you're not 
confident, if you're not feeling really good with your specialist, then find someone who is going to give you that confidence because all your hopes and dreams of a family are, are being held and supported by them. So you want someone who's going to be with you on this, this journey. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the aspects of what you're saying is that, you know, we thankfully get success for a lot of our patients but there'll be some who won't be successful mm. and knowing that they've done absolutely everything yeah and no stern, stones being left unturned and you know really they appreciate that that journey that's led them to that point and I think that's yeah. so important to acknowledge as well that it's not something that works for absolutely every single person which is why that journey becomes even more important that they know they were you know they gave it their absolute best shot and I would say also on that first point about IVF taking away control, <clears throat> it does to, to a big extent. Mm. But what even more importantly, I think it's the fertility struggles mm. that, that uproot, you know, someone's understanding of themselves and takes away control even more so Absolutely. than just the IVF. Um, yeah. And in fact, sometimes couples who've been trying for a very long time, you know, the pressure's all been on them timing things etc it's almost um like they feel a bit a weight's been taken off their shoulders actually seeing someone letting someone else drive you know steer the ship so to speak and putting that responsibility or pressure on someone else um, yes. can actually help in that sense rather than um, burden them Absolutely. I'm all about getting the support. You know, they say they take it takes a village to raise a child, but I feel like in some cases it takes that village to create that child. And in some ways, I, you know, I'm quite passionate about the preconception period, but that I feel it's almost more important, you know, once you're pregnant, that DNA setting stone, but these people can help you optimize that, give you the best outcome, to help you create the healthiest embryo and hopefully the healthiest pregnancy and baby beyond that, which can set your child up for the best start in life so yeah. absolutely and I can't emphasize that more and you know um, often it's not what people want to hear from me <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. they just want something that we you know that will help them they don't want to hear that you know improving diet or exercise you know all um, the hard stuff <laughs> all the hard stuff that I give a pill for you know yeah yeah um and so I think yeah we're a little bit probably guilty of sometimes overlooking it because it is a hard sell and it's yeah. not you know people don't enjoy that message I mean maybe perhaps the people that see you are more motivated and because they've actually come to see you but um a lot of people just want you to help them get pregnant um but that sort of start to life you know the fetal programming the um the you know the genes that actually in the child that you know the future health of of the child and adult actually start from before your pregnancy. So exactly. how can we not try to intervene there? I, I, I love that, um, that message. And I find that, as you were saying, it's that education of the patient. I find if I can explain to them the importance of it, it's easy to get that buy-in. Because, okay, I know, because you can't see, the, I wish you could see that too. And I wish you could see the eggs getting better. And that's why I love seeing the embryologist and you can actually see it. But I think because diet and exercise, that you can't see the immediate results like taking a pill, you feel better. Um, but it has such an impact. And I think selling that impact explains them. This is not just, you know, getting yourself healthy. This is optimizing the DNA that you're passing on to your future child. And this goes for men as well. Um, they're, you know, their, their preconception health influences, you know, 
disease predisposition later in life. It's huge. It's setting healthy kids, healthy grown-ups. So, yeah, we could talk forever on that topic. We'll get <laughs> um, I think we are on the same page. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess in relation to the OHS, if there's anything, well, someone going into a cycle right well, now. Well, first was OHSS. OHSS. So OHSS is um, something I know nothing about occupation. There you go. Let, let's let's not go there. <laughs> it's too late at night when we're recording this. <laughs> OHSS. Uh, if anyone's going into a cycle right now um, and hearing this discussion, like, what's, what's the biggest takeaway you'd like them to have from your research? I think for most people it's not going to be a condition that um, it, for, for most women listening to us it's probably not going to affect them in a hugely significant way. Yeah. So while it is good to be informed about the kind of severe end of the spectrum symptoms like pulmonary emboli and stuff like that, it's not going to happen thankfully to most of our patients and they yeah. do really well. So I would say, you know, just a cursory understanding but not to um let that stop you from you know achieving your goals yeah. and and to be fearful because yeah there are so many things that can be done um you know there's prevention there's the actual management of the condition if it does become severe you know getting to hospital treating it you know that that most women do, do just fine so want to leave it on a reassuring positive note <laughs> yeah that it's there but yeah you're in good hands with your um, medical team hopefully and that can be generally overcome well thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to to be with us today and congratulations on your research i know it's a, a team sport as well and you have a lot of other participants in your research but it's really exciting to see and I love to see the research coming through around IVF that can hopefully give us those better outcomes that we all want for our patients. There are some holy grail things out there that have been pursued so I'm very excited for that too. (laughs) Oh we'll have to have to have you back on again because I always enjoy our our discussion so I hope you've enjoyed um, that episode with with Jenya today and if you haven't listened to our last episode on fertility preservation that was an excellent one too and I know that's something you're really passionate about with your PhD as well. Absolutely. Well thanks so much for joining us and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Thank you everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Conceive Baby podcast. To help you move forward on your journey to pregnancy, I've created your free fertility checklist for you. This checklist provides simple swaps you can make that can have a significant impact on your chances of conceiving and carrying your healthy baby. So be sure to head to conceivebaby.com.au forward slash checklist to download your free fertility checklist today.